Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. It's just about time for Tuesday Home Time. Thanks very much to Acting Up for another wonderful program. It's going to be a bit sad in a couple of weeks when they finish their series, but maybe one day they'll come back again. So today I'll be speaking with, again, Bruce Francis and Brian Newman, and this time they're in Ethiopia. Australian arms sales, we know that the government's pushing and pushing to get more, but do we know who they're being sold to? I'll be speaking with Dr Margie Beavis from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Joan Coxich will be commentating on the situation both here and overseas. Repression in Mindanao, Philippines. It's nothing new, but... um, Indigenous peoples are being singled out once again and I'll be speaking to human rights activist Peter Murphy. An Australian rare earth miner, Linus, is going to court again in Malaysia and to tell us more about it, environment consultant, Lee Tan. But first, to a special person, it's um, Mr Kevin, no it's not, it's Mr I'm so used to saying Kevin Healy. It's Mr. Gary Foley, who is an excellent Aboriginal historian. He calls himself an eminent Aboriginal historian. And here's Gary speaking at the very successful Invasion Day, which was broadcast here on 3CR. I'm uh, getting a little bit old. I'm 70 this year, so I had to write something I couldn't remember. Thank you, God. I'd like to say Kinagay from the Gumbanja people in the north coast of New South Wales. I pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land here who have tolerated me making trouble in their land for the last 40 years. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Every year, every year I get up here and give you a history lesson, folks. Well, here's this year's history lesson. As was said earlier on, it's 82 years since the first expression of Invasion Day in 1938 in a rally held in Sydney during which William Cooper declared this day to be a day of mourning for all Aboriginal people. Ever since this day has been known to all as Invasion Day to counter the celebrations of the supposed founding by the rest of Australia. It was on this day, 50 years ago, in 1972, that the famous Aboriginal Embassy was set up in Canberra in response to the then Prime Minister Billy McMahon's denial of land rights. The Embassy would go on the following six months and become the most effective political action by Aboriginal people in the 20th century. It is sad to note that three 
of the original founders of the Aboriginal Embassy are no longer with us. And I'd like just to say their names to you today so that their names and their deeds will never be forgotten. Billy Craigie. Bertie Williams. Tony Curry. And Michael Anderson is the one who's still with us. Let us never forget those heroic guys on that day. Now, the Christians love me. It was 32 years ago today, in 1988, that the biggest gathering of Aboriginal people in the history of Australia gathered together in Sydney to stand against the Bicentennial, or, as we called it, the Great Masturbation of the Nation. More than 100,000 people marched down the streets in Sydney. And I tell you what, folks, I reckon we got pretty close to that here today. And that, that is a great tribute to war, seed, and all of the people who were involved in organising this. Again, this year, I say congratulations, and next year we'll get even more. The rally in 1988 was held amidst fears fed by tabloid newspapers, fears of violence in the streets of Sydney. Well, folks, the white fellas in Sydney have always been a bit sensitive about big gatherings of blackfellas. That goes all the way back to the day that Captain Cook landed in Botany Bay and he had to fire a musket into a shield to ward off the blackfellas. So it's understandable probably that Sydney people are a bit sensitive. Speaking of Captain Cook, speaking of Captain Crook, this year also marks two significant 50th anniversaries. The first is that in April, this, in April 1970, and in April again this year we should commemorate this, in April 19, in 1970, a large number of Aboriginal people gathered on the shores of Botany Bay to protest against the arrival of Captain Cook in Botany Bay. I was there, folks. The other anniversary is that 50 years ago today, in Redfern, a small group of Aboriginal people, myself, Billy Craigie, Paul Coe, Gary Williams, and what was known as the Black Power Collective of Redfern, set up the first free shopfront legal aid centre for anyone in Australia. Today, that legal service is a multi-million dollar operation. Today, there are hundreds of lawyers all over Australia supposedly working for the benefit of Aboriginal people. But, as we know, there are more Aboriginal people in jail today than what there were when we set up the legal service. Black deaths in custody continue unabated, despite the Royal Commission, despite all of the years of protest. We still keep dying in jail.
So how can, how can any government purport to do a treaty negotiation with people while there are so many blackfellas in the jails in this state? How can any government in good conscience talk about any sort of treaty whilst people are still dying in the jails in Victoria? The clear lesson of that for everyone here today is that we have a long way to go before we achieve justice. And so I say to you young people, it is upon you to take the struggle forward. I, and listen carefully to this folks, I do not claim eldership. I do not believe in my 70 years on this earth yet I have achieved the level of wisdom and knowledge that may entitle me to call myself an elder. But nevertheless, as an old bloke who's standing up here in front of you today, I say this to you, a bit of gratuitous advice in the path forward. I can make a couple of suggestions. Three. One, don't believe the hype. Two, beware of politicians bearing false promises. And number three, if I can turn the page. That's my memory, see, that's the Alzheimer's kicking in. Number three, I'd like to quote... I'd like to quote a quote that I read this morning on summer on Facebook by a very eminent Aboriginal historian, namely myself. I read this in an interview apparently that was done some time ago by a friend of mine in the newspaper Red Flag. There you are, I've given you your plug. But here's the quote. If you want to change the world, it's important to get together with others and be organised because you can't do it by yourself. And that's all the word I can tell you. Thank you. And that was the very eminent Aboriginal historian, the one and only Gary Foley, speaking at the Invasion Day celebrations on Sunday here in Melbourne. Up to 100,000 people, he believes, and maybe there are even more than that. And also, as Gary said... Next year, bigger and better. It's just on 10 minutes past four, and this is Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Over the past two weeks, we heard about the visit to Jordan and Palestine of Bruce Francis and Brian Newman. The final leg of their overseas trip was to Ethiopia, a landlocked country in the Horn of Africa. My first question was, what drew them to Ethiopia? Ethiopia 
is interesting for a number of reasons. One, because, you know, in very many senses, it's sort of the cradle of civilization. So it's a very, very old country, very diverse country, with lots of things that happened. It was n- the one African country that was never really fully colonized, although the Italians tried on a couple of occasions, but, you know, without much luck. It's very big country, and although for most of us the image of uh, Ethiopia is around the drought, it's actually an incredibly fertile, productive country. The other reason is that Ethiopian jazz is fantastic. How much jazz did you see in here? We saw some on the first night. <laughs> that was it, really. Um, but we did see music, but much more traditional music after that rather than... Ethiopian jazz but there's still obviously a lot of music in Ethiopia sort of you know popular music as well as traditional music so um, and a lot of comedy there's a real pride around uh, culture within Ethiopia and there was a few things that really surprised me about it as a country Um, one was having come from Palestine where 95% of men smoke, barely saw a cigarette in um, Ethiopia. And I checked up in the last few days, it has a smoking rate of under 9% for men over 15 and a half a percent for women over 15. So that's amazing, really. It's a country that's sort of established as a federal system based pretty much on tribal groupings. Um, So, you know, the Oromo and the Somali areas and the Eritrean sort of areas and other cultures down the south. Um, So um, this whole sort of federal system that's developed to sort of allow for people to have a degree of self-determination and control um, based on... uh, what their particular mob is. So that's really interesting. Is there any Italian influence still there? Very little. In places like Addis Ababa, the capital, big, bustling city, I forget how many millions of people. Six, I think. Six million, so bigger than Melbourne. Lots of Chinese investment that some people express some concern about. But uh, a sense from people when we were there of the challenges of creating a federal system that works successfully, it's particularly when people talking about the Prime Minister and so forth. Most people were incredibly proud of the Prime Minister and thought he'd been doing some good work, but he'd disappointed in some areas. Well, he's just been acknowledged as doing good yeah, work. Yeah, and there's a sense of um, development happening in Addis. Building work happening everywhere. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it's good. I mean, the economy is booming, so that's that's good. But the old is losing out? Still a lot of um, restoration work going on, a lot funded through European countries and so forth. One of the amazing things in the middle of Addis is this um, park that the Prime Minister has developed into... A park called Unity Park. Unity Park, which had been 
closed to the public for something like a hundred years because it was where the president's palaces and so forth had been. So for the last 18 months, they've been spending massive amounts restoring the old buildings, but also creating all these contemporary spaces in this huge area of parkland. I can't remember how big it is, but I it's think it's oils. about 40 hectares, virtually in the middle of Addis. So building fantastic contemporary children's playgrounds, building beautiful garden spaces, building a whole area where they've built structures in the building styles of all the different regions of the country. So it's sort of like a museum almost and stacks of people working there and you know, amazing waterfalls and gardens and... Yeah, and the plantings they'd particularly been um, planting indigenous Ethiopian plants. So these mass plantings of these plants everywhere. Are these plants that you've never seen before? No, quite a few of them are quite recognisable. They're plants that we would see, and they're not just specific to Ethiopia, but they are native to Ethiopia. And then quite a few which yes, I'd never seen before. So that was amazing. And for us, everyone we spoke to about it, lots of people said, oh, you should go there before we had, and then we well, say we had been. But a real sense of pride, you mm. know, that this place had been built. A, the symbolism of opening up a space which had been for the elite, for the emperors and the presidents, as a symbol of a, a, a different style of leadership and, you know, a commitment to democracy. But then the sort of the fact that it was called Unity Park and that whole sort of sense of including all the parts of, of the country and have them represented and showcased within that and then all the sort of areas um, and people being able to see, you know, their history. So it was full of local Ethiopians who were going there with their families. It was a real sort of lovely family sort of right in the middle of this city which is you know crowded and so stuff so this sort of little haven you know for ordinary people to actually go to and that reminds me of um how you got into unity park was through you know getting a wristband put on you and so forth very high tech everywhere else we went in ethiopia in terms of going to historic places i've never seen so much carbon paper so everyone writes, hand writes the entry tickets in triplicate. So you get the top copy and then you take it to the next person who then writes it down again, all the details before you actually get into the place and so forth. It was astonishing. Everywhere people have pens and those old invoice pads with two sheets of carbon paper. I thought... There are people that I know that would have no idea what that even was. So the other place in Addis that was really, really interesting was this place called Zoma Museum. And it's not really a museum, but was, in fact, a series of dwellings or buildings, adobe buildings, so built out of mud and straw, basically, but all the walls were completely decorated in a 3D sort of design, swirls and circles and little pictures and sort of stuff. Extraordinarily beautiful. And it was sort of built in a sort of a, sort of a gully 
So there was sort of some water, and then it had all been sort of terraced, and then was this really productive garden. So there was a few ornamental type flowers, but lots of fruit and vegetables and stuff. So it was sort of like a high art bit of series, sort of built on the outer edges of Addis. But it was truly a beautiful place to go, very unknown, unlike Unity Park. And the person who'd been responsible for Zoma Museum was also one of the people involved in Unity Park. So there's obviously a, you know, some people thinking about, not just about build in the modern sense, but how to actually preserve history, how to do things sustainably that's also taking place and seemingly getting some traction. I don't think you can talk about Ethiopia without talking about coffee. Yes, well, it's everywhere. <laughs> the home <laughs> of coffee, isn't this it? It is the home of coffee. And, you know, every cafe you go to you know, has someone in the corner sort of roasting coffee beans and then making coffee and serving coffee. And every shop you go to wants to offer you coffee in your little cups. You don't have grinding going on all the time? No. no. There's ordinary coffee, like we'd have in Melbourne, and then there's Ethiopian coffee, which is a particular wild bean I think they are that they roast and I don't think they grind it but they put it into this earthenware carafe and stew it and then pour it into the tiny cups so it was a particular coffee it's not what everyone drinks but it's there in every restaurant so you go to a cafe or something and they'd have tea and coffee on offer and then they'd have Ethiopian coffee as well did you go to the areas where the coffee is grown? No, no, no. I, I think it's more in the south. We were more in the north. Um, we didn't see coffee being grown. But, I mean, what we did see was amazingly productive agriculture. It was truly masses of grains being grown. Teff, which is the grain they use to make injera, the Ethiopian sort of bread, but barley, wheat, as well as vegetables and crops, other crops. Is um, this around the Nile area or more? No, no, all the way. It, I mean, wherever you go, well, when we, where we went in the north, over quite a long distance, it's rich, it's productive, there seems to be water supplies. So, yes, um, I mean, there are desert areas, um, Clearly, but most of it... I mean, it's got a population of 110 million. It has to produce a lot of food. A lot of people too. Yeah, that's a lot of people to feed. So it does, but you just see it everywhere. And we went up to the Simeon Mountains. That was as far north as we went. Absolutely stunning country. Never seen country like it. But in the middle of these... You're 3,500 metres above sea level. In the middle of these towering sort of cliffs with you know sheer drops there'd be a plateau it would be farmed and the only way to get in and out was down a trail with a donkey and that's the way people would get their requirements in and their produce out so right across ethiopia saturdays are market days we went out actually to the blue nile falls on market day which meant that the trip took about twice as long as normal because the last three kilometres when we were coming into the village just by the falls, everyone was coming to the village for market day. So 
the whole road was taken up with donkeys loaded up with things, men and women with great weights on their head taking whatever it was. Everyone was out with weighing machines and selling and buying whatever they needed. But every Saturday right across the country is market day. And at that village, they also had a market day on Wednesday for livestock. Incredibly fertile soil. The area in the Simeon Mountains, it's all a national park. So we stayed right on the edge of the national park to go into the park. Apart from going and getting your forms filled out in triplicate, you had to travel with a guide and a scout at all times if you're in the park. And the scout is armed. Against? There are leopards and wolves and hyenas and stuff. So I think it was mainly about the animals. It didn't wasn't an area that had had a lot of unrest, although there is a general sense within Ethiopia of security measures. There's quite a few army, well, not roadblocks, but army inspection points along highways. Yeah, just random that we came across where we were always waved through because we were white folk with a guide and a scout, but other people would get stopped. What about the animals? You said there's lots of big animals, small animals. On our day in the Simeon Mountains, that was a very long day in a four-wheel drive, we got right way up into the mountains and saw the Walia endangered ibex, which is um, an important symbol in Ethiopia. It's this beautiful creature. Um, We also saw baboons of various sorts, often in huge mobs of them, several hundred, all in an area grazing together because they're vegetarian. And apparently they just go off to the caves in the area at night and split off into their family groups. But during the day, they travel as a sort of several hundred strong herd, I suppose they are. Uh, They were... Really, um, is that sort of for protection against leopards? Leopards, yeah, I imagine it probably is. But you could just walk amongst them without any problems, so they're quite sort of used to humans and they are protected, yeah, yeah, because it's within the national park and so forth. Yeah, it's quite a lot of national parks in Ethiopia, which is really exciting. There's a lot of concern for the environment we experience. Yeah, it was interesting. People knew about the fires in Australia (laughs) and talked about climate change, which is really interesting. Particularly in relation to Australia. (laughs) But they didn't talk about how it's impacting on them? Not so much, because I think it actually looked like it was a pretty good season in Ethiopia at this point in time. But people were clearly aware that it was an issue, which was sort of interesting, I thought. People were politically engaged, I thought, with what was actually happening in their country. So education is widespread? I don't know, but certainly people had views which they were very happy to share with us about, you know, their Prime Minister, where the country had come from, you know, what the problems were, stuff. So, you know, people seemed to be having, talking about that stuff and were quite free in expressing their views. I I suppose pretty safe where sort of foreigners, but yeah, that was sort of interesting. Uh, And people often, 
you know, were happy to talk about that. So it wasn't, you know, people being untrusting or anything, you know, wondering why you were asking. It was just a conversation. You asked the question, you got the answer. You also went to the former capital city. Where is that? Uh, Gonda. Gonda is sort of north of Addis. Um, it's about an hour's flight, so whatever that means. I think it probably means it's, you know, eight or 800 kilometres maybe um, north. It's where the royal city was, and Gonda is really built right round it, you know, like the the royal enclosure sort of was in the middle of the town, which is really interesting. But some really beautiful old buildings, obviously quite a established, wealthy society that existed, and that was the centre of it. Again, one of those sort of areas that we've never heard much about. As someone pointed out to me when, you know, Cecil Rhodes was in Zimbabwe, people discovered Great Zimbabwe, which is a beautiful walled city, that he brought in a law that banned people talking about it because it blew away the myth of colonialism and that, you know, it was only the Europeans who were civilised and bought things. But, you know, clearly when you're in Ethiopia, you do get this, the sense that there has been very meaningful, advanced civilizations there for a very, very, very long period of time. And Gondor is a really good example of that. But also you'll see, you know, in places, structures from the 10th, 11th and 12th century churches. Ethiopia, which I didn't know before I went, was one of the earliest countries in the world to actually take up Christianity, 4th century. So there are a lot of very old churches and they're very different to what we imagine churches. They're actually quite beautiful, and they're usually decorated with the most amazing frescoes. So the artwork within the churches is amazing. But they build churches on islands in the middle of lakes and, you know, all sorts of odd places that are, uh, you know, are difficult to, to get to, but have been there for, you know, maybe 10 centuries. Going to Ethiopia was my first time in Africa. People don't live the high life. People live in really modest accommodation, particularly out in the country, really tiny houses, limited sanitation. We saw people all the time carrying water. It's not a wealthy country by any stretch of the imagination. And even in the cities... Lots of people who work as shoe shiners and things like that on the street. But there is wealth there as well. But again, I think people's hope is that the current government is trying to address those things. Tourism is clearly a significant part of the country's income. Everywhere there were signs of the importance of tourism in terms of the places we were at anyway. It's significance to the local economy and so forth. Did you get any sense also of the significance of the young children? Were there a lot of children around? Yes, there's always children around. Going to school all the time, children in school uniforms, big masses of kids and take over the streets sometimes when you're (laughs) trying to get around. So, yeah, lots of um, education. In the countryside, young people were working as well so you'd often see teenagers coming home from high school they always carried school books in their hand 
and then they'd go and work in the fields and you'd see them out in the fields but with their homework out there. Yeah, that was something I did definitely notice. As in, you know, those developing countries, the kids have a role to play in the economy. I mean, like if there's herds of goats and sheep, then, you know, the kids are likely to be looking after them, you know, before or after school or on weekends or whatever. So it's not, you know, uh, they're not divorced from that. Kids are very much part of what the adults are doing. Um, and Ethiopia, you know, with its population is still a very rural country. So mm-hmm. it's not urbanised in the same sort of way, apart from Addis, which is large. The next biggest city is, I think, less than a million, and there's sort of, you know, probably five or six that are sort of no more than half a million to a million. So when you've got a population of 110 million, you've got a lot of people living in the countryside. Just in terms of Ethiopia, I mean, and and stuff, I mean, it is a spectacularly beautiful country. It's geographically beautiful. It's culturally diverse and really, really interesting. It's historically interesting. So in terms of a country which with tourism potential, it has amazing tourism potential if they can you know, harness that in a way which isn't exploitative. It could be a real asset for Ethiopia. Clearly, you know, there is development. I think they've had, you know, 6% growth for the last quite a few years. Hopefully we're seeing a democratic opening up. So it was a place that was optimistic to me. Um, it had all the charm of, of an African country with that sort of culture and easiness and stuff that, 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 that you see, but also with things to be really optimistic about. So that was really exciting. It's great to hear Bruce and Brian talking about their, their visits to countries, tell a really good story and look really into the, the background of the, the place that they are visiting. And you might remember last week and the week before they talked about Palestine and Brian spoke about their visit to the Kafia factory, a little factory in the West Bank, keeping going by people like us who buy their kafir. So if you haven't got a kafir yet, here's your chance. 3CR are selling kafir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And don't forget to have a look at the website for 3CR, 3cr.org.au to get information of how to listen to programs such as this streaming and also to podcast the program to listen to at your leisure anytime you like. Next, social activist and author, writer, Joan Coxedge. Dreadful start for the year, seeing the terrible devastation of our beautiful land and the heartbreak of those who've lost everything. Nature kicking us in the teeth for treating it with contempt. 
white fellow man- mismanagement from the time we set foot on this soil right up to the present where we've, when we've ignored God knows how many lessons from the past, the Royal Commissions and official inquiries where reports have been looked at and shoveled away, even though it's clear that we are now facing a far more diabolical fire season with more severe droughts and hotter temperatures. But it still might be useful to cherry-pick some of the conclusions from those earlier inquiries rather than going over the same old ground. In the aftermath of the horrendous 1939 bushfire, when the entire state seemed to be on fire, the government appointed Justice Stretton to head the Royal Commission. He looked at the hows and whys, and his eloquent report contained a number of suggested reforms for forest and bushfire management that was much praised at the time. And then along came World War II, and his report was put on a back shelf and forgotten. And today we're faced with a rotten government led by morons who still pretend that climate change is an invention. Business as usual, with crooked money for water allocations, for inappropriate land development and for coal. With a silly ad man prime minister who thought it was okay to jet off to Hawaii while his country was burning. We won't forget him all this time in a hurry. A summer of searing heat and burning suns and filthy smoke-filled air with a strange orangey haze that hovered over our cities and suburbs, followed by floods and brown rain and wild winds. Houses and tiny townships whose names we'd never heard of, gone. Rivers, gone. Old forests, gone. With God knows how many animals lying dead and injured, a billion at last count and the fearful loss of our precious and unique wildlife, many pushed to extinction, along with the tiny creatures that lie deep in the ground that can never be replaced, one species dependent on the other. A brutal calculus of what we have lost, with some images more haunting than others, the dead birds washed up on a Victorian beach in a tide of black ash after being blown out to sea during the firestorm, our beautiful, unique rainbow lorikeets, black cockatoos, honey eaters, whipbirds, king parrots and crimson rosellas. More than 8.4 million acres blackened. Our understanding of fire in our landscape is elusive and evolving, a harbinger of a new era some are calling the age of fire. We've entered a new world order. Not the Bush or Trump definition, but the definition of our natural world has changed forever. As our brave fireys know only too well as they battled conditions they'd never encountered before. And the rest of the world looked on in horror at our burning and our stupidity, at the failure of our leadership and seen an apocalyptic future for the entire planet. In Britain, for the first time, renewable energy has overtaken fossil fuels to become the largest source of electricity. Only 2% of Britain's energy comes from coal, whereas here it's about 75%, 90% in Victoria and New South Wales. And while the World Economic Forum held a meeting in Davos, Switzerland, its 50th anniversary an insanely pompous gathering of 3,000 gas bags arriving in their private jets, the decadence of the very rich, 
along with five royals, 22 presidents and 23 prime ministers. To achieve what, we wonder. When Donald Trump stepped off Air Force One, he was watched by hundreds of sharpshooters on airport rooftops, especially flown in from the US of A, a display of power and money and arrogance and an agenda spiked with lies and deceptions. Trump's speech epitomised how US isolationism is reaching its final narcissistic chapter in its greed, dishonesty and insanity. While he was attacking environmentalists as being, quote, the perennial prophets of doom, his impeachment process was opening in Washington but will never get past the Senate. But what does it say about America's so-called unique moral authority when its current president tears up nuclear treaties with Iran, climate change agreements and military alliances, betrays the Kurds, destroys Palestinian hopes of a state and demands cash for everything his soldiers do in the Middle East and bars Iran's top diplomat, Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, from entering the US to address the United Nations Security Council about the assassination of Iran's top military official in Baghdad, violating the terms of a 1947 headquarters agreement requiring Washington to permit foreign officials into the country to conduct UN business. The meeting was meant to provide Tehran's top diplomat with his first opportunity to directly address the world community since Trump ordered the drone strike that killed Major General Qasem Soleimani at Baghdad Airport. A brutal, cold-blooded murder. Trump's claim that he ordered the murder of Soleimani in order to stop a war is an insult to common intelligence and morality, neither of which he has. Even before the current crisis, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has sought to restrict Zarif a skilled debater who studied in the U.S. and had extensive contacts with American journalists to make his case. If the U.S. and Iran do go to war, it will be in no small part due to the cowardly appeasement of European powers in the face of such primal American criminality. For the last century, the U.S. government has made it its regular business to execute or by the execution of men it deemed geopolitically damned. There isn't enough space to review the long list of America's secret victims. Skipping past America's more notorious standard-issue deep-cover CIA murders, Lumumba, Che, Allende, Diem, to name a few, its incursions and clandestine exterminations to the era of exterminating with extreme prejudice by quasi-military units like the Phoenix Program that murdered thousands of Vietnamese was only a short step to the creation of specialised hit squads. Targeted assassinations have expanded their lethal reach to an attitude of kill them all, let God sort them out. Let us be clear, none of these cowardly murders were done in the heat of authorised battle or during a so-called legally declared war. These assassinations are just murders without acknowledgement, much less official justification. We can sneer at Trump as an unhinged goose, but he's also extraordinarily dangerous. He's the epitome of Christian fascism, with many more followers than we like to admit. 
He's inserted other sociopaths into position of power. Mike Pence as his vice president, Mike Pompeo as his secretary of state, along with his attorney general, and has installed 133 district court judges, 50 appeals court judges, and two Supreme Court judges, many of them unqualified, according to the American Bar Association. Trump has moved to ban Muslim immigrants and rolled back civil rights legislation, made war on reproductive rights by restricting abortion and defunding Planned Parenthood. He has stripped away the firewall between church and state by revoking the Johnson Amendment which prohibits churches which are tax-exempt from endorsing political candidates. His appointees throughout the government routinely used biblical strictures to justify an array of policy decisions, including environmental deregulation, war, tax cuts and the replacement of public schools with charter schools, an action that permits the transfer of federal education funds to private Christian schools, just like here in Australia. Some American academics at Harvard University Divinity School, who had been in Germany in 1935 and 1936, witnessed the rise of the so-called Christian Church, which was pro-Nazi, and warned of the disturbing parallels between the German Christian Church and the American Christian Right. Adolf Hitler was, in the eyes of the German Christian Church, a Volk Messiah, an instrument of God, a view similar to the one held today about Trump by many of his white evangelical supporters. Fascism, as we've often discussed, is always cloaked in the nation's most cherished symbols and rhetoric. Fascism is unlikely to come in the guise of stiffly armed marching brown shirts and Nazi swastikas, but in the mass recitations of the Pledge of Allegiance, the biblical sanctification of the state and American militarism, and its equivalent here. Liberals, the small L variety, as they did in Nazi Germany, are more likely to sit and look and do nothing until it's too late. Trump's legacy will be the empowerment of Christian fascists. For decades they have been organising to take power, building structures and organisations, including lobby groups and media platforms to prepare They have placed their cadres into the heart of the American political system, while the left has seen their institutions and organisations destroyed or corrupted by corporate power. Like all totalitarian movements, the Christian fascists need a crisis. It could be financial, a catastrophic terrorist attack, a societal breakdown, or from a climate emergency. The Christian right is really a crisis cult, that comes up out of the woodwork in most collapsing societies with a promise to recover the lost grandeur and power of a mythologised past and banish doubt, anxiety and feelings of disempowerment. Traditional rules and hierarchies, including an unapologetic white male supremacy, will be restored, along with an unquestioning submission to authority, and they alone know the will of God. It's an emotional life raft for tens of millions and is impervious to education, dialogue and discourse that many believe can blunt their influence. Too many parallels here to be complacent, especially with our own evangelical PM with close links to the US of A 
our deliberate destruction of unions and standard of living, with many of those still in jobs having to work two or three to make ends meet, with them feeling desperate and helpless. Trump may win the 2020 election. If that happens, it will be in no small part to another key part of American political authoritarianism, the centrist, corporate, financial and imperial neoliberalism policies fueling everything. If Trump doesn't win, he will not exit quietly or easily. It's been suggested that coups are afoot and the civil war is in the offing. He is already preparing the narrative for his followers, a narrative that could end tragically. It means there's a hell of a lot to talk about. Many also tell me about their concerns at the way we're being pushed along by Silicon Valley's technological answer to everything, whether we like it or not. A silent takeover of our lives that is far more serious than children spending too much time on screens, companies flogging off our data, and hackers interfering in elections. What is happening is a fundamental rewiring of our brains, leading to behaviour that is ripping apart our social fabric. We're in the middle of a massive social upheaval caused by these high-tech companies who see the world's 2.7 billion smartphone users as a mere resource whose attention they can mine for profit. Attention capitalism is making us nastier, stupider and much less likely to find common ground with other human beings. A downgrading of the human condition. Belief in truth and facts is slipping away at a time when they've never been more desperately needed so we can do something about our failing system. But it's not a fair fight. The technological industry knows how to keep us ensnared. They know more about us than we know about ourselves. On a lighter note, I'd like to end with a poem first heard on Radio National Science Program by Florence Wassum, who gave it to Peter Oberhart to read out at last Sunday's Unitarian Church service, most appropriately on Australia Day. The poem is called Melanoma Country by Jonathan Hapold, a veteran epidemiologist who lives in Canberra. What is this sunburnt country of smoke and threatening flames, of blackened mountain ranges, of dust and absent rains? This land that once was beautiful, that nourished heart and head, now keeps us up at night with thoughts of hopelessness and dread. And as we face this danger, our heads are in the sand. We're doing bugger all to help this dehydrated land. We squabble and we dally. We ignore the facts and truth. Our PM says, don't panic, while our fireys mutter, struth. We have an ad man, prayer man, coal man and his brethren at the wheel with an attitude of, she'll be right, let's keep an even keel. Why risk it for a biscuit? We're too small to help besides. Let others do the lifting to curb the rising tides. But it's more than absent leadership and policy slip-slop-slap. It's the stun-struck zombie voters who don't seem to give a crap. Is that who we've become? A land of mindless three-word slogans, of quiet, shameless selfishness, of comfy, cashed-up bogans? That's not Anzac. That's not Marbo. Why not punch above our weight and lead by good example before it's way too late? Because thoughts and prayers won't cut it, nor will ignorance and blame. We need to act with purpose 
now, right now, or hang our heads in shame. For when our children's children turn and look us in the eye and ask us what we did to help the water, land and sky, our answer will be feeble. It will simply sound insane. They'll wonder if we had a melanoma on the brain. But more than that, they'll question why we didn't make a start. They'll sense the rot went deeper. Melanoma of the heart. Good afternoon and the best of luck. And many thanks to writer and social activist Joan Coxidge. Repression affecting the indigenous peoples of Mindanao in the Philippines has been a fact of lot for decades as successive governments seek to open up their lands to overseas companies to develop the resources. The last years have been exceptionally brutal with numerous deaths and families constantly under threat from militarisation, increased presence of soldiers and aerial bombings. But last week those seeking safety from early repression are under attack again. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, the chairperson of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. Peter, what is this latest attack against the Indigenous peoples in the Philippines? Yeah, I got a big shock uh, late last week when I realised that uh, a United Church of Christ of the Philippines compound in Davao City, which has been an important refuge for many years now for Indigenous people who have been displaced by violence in the countryside, was ordered to be shut down. So there was a sort of a bureaucratic moment, I think on January 15, of a body, a body that I'm not really clear on, uh, called the local, or the, could even be a regional peace and order council. It's a sort of an ominous title, but they uh, issued a, an order which seems to have some kind of legal bearing that this uh, compound had to be closed and all the people removed. So it, it's a sort of a national security decision. When you say compound, yeah. Peter, what do you mean? An area of land that's a, probably a couple of hectares. Um, at least there's a uh, a church on it, a sort of an administrative place for the bishop, and then there's uh, you know simple dwelling structures built by the indigenous people in on the land, and there's about 500 people living there, of whom um, 236 are children, attending a school, which is run in the compound. You know, so it's a really big, you know, human impact, this, this order. Anyway, you know, people were protesting and asking that that order be removed, withdrawn. And then on Saturday morning, so that's the 25th of January, news started to come through on Twitter that security and, and uh, also a militia or a paramilitary group had surrounded the compound and were starting to break through the walls. Uh, so it was actually a physical threat to everybody. There was a lot of alarm. Paramilitary group is called Alamara, and as far as I know, it, it's been operating since about 1994, and it, it, it relates to uh, a logging company, a well-known logging company trying to take the land of one of the uh, Manobo tribes in, in the area, I think just north of Davao. This uh, Alamara group is, is really quite notorious for, you know, brutal violence. There was a lot of alarm because some of the people inside the compound are Manobo people from that area uh, where Alamara operates. 
you know, it was sort of a naked expression of how it really works in the Philippines that uh, the police, the military and the paramilitaries are all the one operation and that there they all were knocking down the walls of this compound. Because the United Church of Christ of the Philippines is a very important church, you know, it's a hugely Catholic country, but among the Protestant denominations, UCCP is a strong and uh, relatively big church. Some of the uh, prominent politicians and, and uh, administrative people in the country are members of the United Church of Christ of the Philippines. The local bishops managed to uh, arrange for a you know, cessation of the assault and a dialogue. Dialogue took place in a different part of the city. There were media allowed into the compound to report the situation, but then they were removed. The last I heard was that uh, the senior leadership at national level of the United Church of Christ of the Philippines had, had called for a national dialogue with the Defence Secretary and other prominent officials, including the Education Department, because of this... Uh, school also operating inside the compound. I think it's a sort of a standoff. It's a very, very bad situation. It's another demonstration of, you know, the sort of absurdity of this narrative the government runs that they're fighting terrorism and the terrorists have to turn out to be teachers, school kids, the parents of the school kids and, and so forth. You know, from an Australian perspective, we really need to call the attention of the Australian government to this because the Australian government is a significant contributor of money to the uh, security services in the Philippines, the army, the police, and through that to the paramilitaries. I'm sure you've already done that, but Peter, just explain a little bit more why the people are there and how long they've been there. I've been visiting this uh, Haran compound of the United Church of Christ uh, in Davao, I think five times over the last four years. And uh, every time there's been a significant number of evacuated Indigenous people there. The last time I was there in, in February uh, 2018, there was a um, situation where this Alamara paramilitary had entered the communities in the mountains carrying weapons, telling people that they had to surrender, in inverted commas, as that is, admit that they were uh, members of the New People's Army or the Communist Party of the Philippines and uh, cease all resistance to the intrusion of mining plantation projects and logging companies into their uh, traditional lands. I was a bit remote from this situation, but I, I was in Davao. Elders of that community decided to evacuate the children, their mothers especially, and so some of the men. They set off in the night and walked for four nights to reach uh, an area north of Davao. Separately from that, um, I was in Davao City and there was a, a scare or a apprehension that the entire uh, Davao City would be locked down in a security sort of rehearsal operation. It was all part of what was going on under martial law in uh, Mindanao. Davao is a pretty big city. You know, it's a big, it would have been a very big operation. So uh, I was taking part in a human rights summit. So there's a lot of people there, about 500 people from all over the island, discussing the, the really dire circumstances they were working in. This demand to surrender, in inverted commas, was being really put on all of them. 
whatever they did, you know. Uh, it was decided that foreigners like myself should leave Davao City and go to a calmer area just in the next municipality north and stay there while this moment passed. So a group of us went, went uh, north and as we arrived and descended from vehicles, we were going to stay with some farmers uh, on a banana plantation which they had only a year ago uh, won back title to under the agrarian reform program. So it was a sort of a friendly zone. But I was very surprised to see that there were all of these uh, Indigenous children there and they, they were really distressed actually. At that time I think there was like 150 kids and maybe another 50 adults with them and uh, they were just trying to settle into this uh, very makeshift situation and there really, really wasn't enough uh, you know, water containers even and other simple utensils for them. Anyway, we, we got the story, we, we stayed there a night ourselves. The uh, interaction with those people was, I think, uh, very carefully done, but uh, the spokesperson explained the situation, asked for help, and you could see uh, the bewildered faces of these kids who obviously were very tired from the long walk, uh, but also the displacement. You know, it was a sort of a very, very in-your-face realisation of what actually all of this trouble in the Philippines means to very simple people. It's uh, hard to know what to do with things like that, but uh, of course, coming back to Australia after that, uh, I, I actually do know more about the situation and seeing this, this develop last week and on, on Saturday, you know, makes me very angry and, uh, and I do know that uh, we in Australia can help uh, even from far away, we can help to restrain the, the violence of this type of uh, threat to Indigenous people and, uh, and other groups of people trying to just uh, defend their livelihoods and their, their very right to life. Since 2018, as far as I know, these evacuations have been going on for about 15 years. The people will be put under threat. They will decide that the whole community has to move. They will walk for days to some nearby urban area. It may be Davao, it may be some other city in, in Mindanao, and they'll end up camped at a municipal gymnasium or on a f field or in a church compound until some negotiation can happen and they can return to their normal homes. And then, you know, one or two years later, it'll all happen again. These communities... Uh, Obviously, you know, we, we in Australia can refer to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and sort of see them living on their traditional lands, them being impacted by colonisation and them surviving. This evacuation return tempo is really a survival technique that the community's got and they're pretty coherent in, in managing, you know, what, what are really bad upheavals for everyone. But after they've been forced out for a couple of years and they're allowed to go back, what do they go back to? Often they go back to a place where their dwellings have been damaged or destroyed and their livestock are all, are all gone. Their crops uh, haven't been planted. You know, so it's a sort of start again situation, but you know, the construction materials for the homes are, are at hand and they're relatively simple. The people have the skills to construct them, they're good at farming, they're good at animal husbandry. So, so long as they can get the wherewithal to kick off again, 
you know, they can rebuild their communities. You know, in this last 15 years especially, they did build schools, over 250 schools, um, in these relatively remote mountainous areas where the government never provided schools before. So the children, you know, who started in those schools 15 years ago are now adults and young leaders and teachers, some of them themselves. The uh, children today are, you know, far more literate, numerate and systematic, you know, in using uh, appropriate technology in farming and so on. So the schools have even even made the community stronger and more resilient under the threat. So the government has targeted the schools in particular. At the end of last year, I think about 55 schools were closed by orders of the Department of Education. And really spurious, sort of absurdist uh, allegations that they teach children how to dismantle firearms or that they teach people how to rebel against the government and so on. The schools really uh, you know, operate with the curriculum of the, the national curriculum with an emphasis on sustainable agriculture. And, uh, of course, they do teach their own language and uh, they train children in their culture, dancing, singing, uh, artwork and so on. But uh, this is hardly a national security threat. We're still really dealing with uh, efforts to seize the lands of these indigenous peoples. And when the land is seized and the people don't get back, what happens to that land? Who takes it over? Really, they're taken over by corporations. There's a really uh, well-known one called Alcantara. It's a really big family operation. It started in the Marcos period with logging. But now it's still logging and it's also into plantations and it's also starting to operate, you know, in joint venture mining operations. There's a really huge Japanese company called Konsuji, which is notorious in Mindanao for plantations taking over ancestral lands. It's generally corporates and uh, corporates with really strong connections to the president's office, the local uh, oligarchs and uh, and generally some kind of international partner as well. Before he was president, Duterte had a position of power in Mindanao? He was the mayor of Davao City, which is the biggest city in, in Mindanao, for a, a very long time. Daughter is now the mayor, so uh, it's a family affair. And the daughter, Sarah, her husband is a lawyer who is basically working for these land-grabbing companies. And you're talking about Christian communities or indigenous communities. There's also the, the war against the Muslim people of Mindanao. Yes. I received some images from uh, Marawi City last uh, week. Some of the Moro leaders were able to go there and consult with their networks. And what was shocking was that the pictures are exactly the same as they were two years ago. There's not been any rehabilitation at all take place in Marawi City, over 300,000 people are still excluded from returning to their homes. Yeah, I think that there's a, a really difficult situation there that's uh, a very big danger, you know, for the whole of um, Mindanao and the Philippines, that the land grabbing of a city, which is really a very ancient urban area, with a sense, you should have the sense that it's also the ancestral domain of uh, a tribe, Maranao people, 
that um, they will insist on having their land back and they're up against uh, the Philippines army the army has uh, made a what about one third of the city area into a military reserve that's some kind of legal order um, which would uh, prohibit anyone who's not military from building on it but the military haven't built on it either <laughs> really nothing happened at all it's as if there's either no money or there's no agreement at the top about you know who's going to get the goodies in terms of the land grab that's that's taken place a bit of a di- disgrace really uh, even in even in Duterte's own terms and of course it's, it seems to me to be a, a massive you know breach of law that that these people are displaced the way they are and uh, their land is is looks like it's been stolen from them what joy do you get when you speak to government ministers or public servants and, and express your concerns about the situation there at the moment? Well, I don't get much joy at all, uh, Jan, from discussing with our government officials. I think the current phrases that they use are that Australia has a, has a long and complex relationship with the Philippines, which we do not want to jeopardise. Therefore, they will not do anything of any consequence terms of pressure on the Philippines government to alter this behaviour um, and Australia's got a lot of leverage in fact not that there's a, you know, a lot of trade or investment between the two countries but the military um, and aid relationship is, is pretty significant you know, Australia's the second most important donor of uh, military aid after the United States I think Australia has about 300 troops deployed in the Philippines the U.S. now has 600 permanently deployed in the Philippines. So it starts to give you a picture of you know, how significant Australia's role is. It seems that the Australian government position is captured by the U.S. policy, which is probably not that happy with Duterte either, but they're not going to do anything about that while their focus is on China, keeping the broad loyalty of you know whoever's in government in the Philippines to US policy. Pretty shameful situation in terms of Australian policy. We train 150 Filipino military officers in Australia every year. So it's, it's a lot of relationships in the military. You know, Filipino military officers are ordering a lot of you know, crimes against humanity. You know, my work is to keep trying to reach out to new people in Australia to convey the information and to find ways to you know, have those people also press the government for you know, far uh, more progressive policy that really is supportive of our democratic values and our alleged uh, um, interest in you know, human progress. Turning to Timor-Leste, Peter, mm, once yeah. again there's political instability there. What's the reason for it this time? Well, I, I can't quite uh, get to the bottom of uh, all of the things that just happened last week there, but uh, nub of it is that uh, when the budget was presented by the government to the parliament early last week, biggest uh, component of the government coalition, the government alliance, which is the CNRT party, it abstained on the vote. I think it's got like 20 seats in the 65-seat parliament. The Fretilin voted against. They got 23 votes. So you see that the number of those who actually voted for 
the um, budget was, was insufficient to carry it. This is, in constitutional terms, in, in Timor less, this is quite a significant problem. And now the government has to uh, revert to a formula that they just used last year's budget and spend one-twelfth of it every month in the coming year. That means it's not a cut in government spending, but there's really no new programs can be started. They had to continue old programs, which might be even finished using the, the previous budget. So it's, it's actually pretty bad in terms of uh, maintaining some kind of constructive role for government spending. Now, why did it happen? It seems to be just a matter of speculation so far, but the, the power inside CNRT is Shanana Gusmao. He's a former president, former prime minister. Reason he, he might be uh, calling for this abstaining uh, on the budget is that he's putting pressure on the prime minister, Tao Matan Ruok, to appoint a different group of people from uh, suggested by CNRT to ministries. The Prime Minister did put those names forward at the, uh, after the last election and uh, the President, who's from Fretland, his name is uh, Luolo, rejected a number of them, I think nine, uh, on the grounds that they were either guilty already of uh, sort of corruption charges or were under investigation for corruption. And uh, I do think it's widely accepted that uh, these people are involved in corruption. It's, it's, it's a sort of a, a standoff uh, over an important matter and for bad reasons, I think, uh, uh, Shanana Gushmao is, is insisting that these people have to be um, in the ministry, that you know, now he's going to sort of make the government be hobbled to put pressure on, on the Prime Minister and the President to, to change their attitude. One explanation, probably yep. close to the truth, but I, I'm sure there's more to it. Perhaps we'll hear about that later. Yes, you know, it could lead to another election. And we, we only had an election last year, and we had an election the year before that. So, so it, as you said in your intro, you know, it is unstable. Thank you, Peter, once again. Okay, Jan. You're welcome. And that, of course, was Peter Murphy from Sydney, human rights activist and also trade union activist. Last week, Dr. Margie Beavers, the Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, spoke about the recognition by health professionals worldwide of the impact on health of climate change and urging the federal government to recognise a climate emergency and act accordingly. More to that interview now with Margie. Turning now to the recent departure of HMS Toowoomba to the Gulf, even though this was announced many months ago, the situation concerning the US and its apparent determination to confront Iran has reached a, a dangerous point. You'd agree with that? Well, I think it's very risky. I mean, our government calls for de-escalation, but at the same time, the Toowoomba's steaming towards the Straits of Hormuz and the estimated time of deployment is around Australia Day, um, so in about a week's time. And this is, yes, it's supposedly about freedom of navigation, but this is a US-led coalition and it's also a show of force against Iran, who neighbours up on the Straits of Hormuz. And, and really the major problem with the Persian Gulf is anything can happen. As you can see, they, in error, shot down that passenger plane, which had a lot of Ukraine people on it, Ukrainians on it, and Canadians. And it's really disingenuous, it's probably being a bit kind. It's cynical to call for de-escalation on the one hand and to be sending forces on the other. 
there needs to be a, a clearer set of signals that Australia does still continue to support the Iran nuclear agreement, even though Trump has done so much that I think it's, it's a thing of the past. But even so, to fall into line behind the Americans when they have assassinated sort of the second most, the, the, the General Soleimani, who really, it's, it's sort of becoming might is right to assassinate a very senior military official when you're not actually at war with the country is very close to an act of war. Well, you can imagine if it had happened the other way around. Absolutely. If they'd killed the vice president or they'd killed the head of the, one of the senior generals in the, in the Americans, you would never hear the end of it. I mean, the, the, that would be war. I think the fact that the, the American military is bigger than the next seven military combined of all the other nations, if you combine Russia and China and all the major military forces around the world, America is seven times bigger than all of them put together, and yet that doesn't mean what it does is right. And it's very disappointing that our, our government uh, just falls into line and to send a HMS Toowoomba to the Straits of Abarca, and just a point that I picked up on when you, when we had the, the, the soldiers and the reservists being put to work in the bushfire areas, and you think, well, how many times do those soldiers and airmen, seamen, go overseas to fight someone else's war? It's very unusual that they're actually here helping Australians. Yes, although they don't often call out the reserve, I think. I think the reserve is usually pretty much home-based. But I think, yes, I think calling out the army is sort of trying to sort of patch up something that they haven't addressed at a much earlier stage. I mean, if more preventive action would, would... I think it was a good idea, because I think all the help was needed, given the, the severity of the fires. But it feels a little bit like too little too late, and that action really needs to be taken now to, to turn around Australia's approach to climate change. Yeah, I'm also thinking of the fact that most most of the time our soldiers or anyone in the armed forces are overseas fighting someone else's war, not here helping Australians. Yes, I, yeah, fighting someone else's war is certainly something we've done a lot of. A lot of American wars. Malcolm Fraser's terrific book, Dangerous Allies, sort of spells it out how much being allied to both Britain and then now to the US has got us involved in so many wars we didn't need to be part of. Yeah, it's time Australia had an independent foreign policy that have Donald Trump determining Australia's foreign policy is really depressing. Another issue which is of great concern is the exponential increase in Australians' arms manufacture and export. And we had the Prime Minister or the Minister for, I'm not quite sure what was, gloating that, you know, within a few years we're going to have so many billion dollars of um arms manufacturing export in Australia but we don't hear about where these arms are being exported to do we? No. Christopher Pine made That's right. he was Minister for Defence Industries and I actually don't think it's Minister for Defence Industries it's Minister for Selling Weapons <laughs> but when Christopher Pine was Minister for Selling Weapons he went to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates about five times or five times or about he went five times selling to deliberately to market weapons to the Middle East, which is really pretty revolting given how unstable the Middle East is and given that the United Arab Emirates and the Saudi Saudis are both stand accused of war crimes. And Australia is a signatory to the Arms Trade Treaty. Now, the Arms Trade Treaty says we won't sell weapons to countries that are accused of war crimes or that we think may be undertaking human rights abuses. And yet here we are actively spending a lot of money taking trade missions to sell weapons to these countries. And 
is in complete sort of contravention of Australia's signing of this treaty. If you look at the 2018-2019 financial year, we sold $5 billion worth of weapons, and that was up from $1.6 billion the year before. We've sold a lot to, to as I said, to the Saudis, the United Arab Emirates, United Arab Emirates, UAE. We're also selling to Sri Lanka and also to the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is just, again, these are countries where, particularly Democratic Republic, Republic of Congo, there's been enormous crimes against humanity and about 5 million people have fled. Back in the Civil War, 5 million people were killed and all arms sales to Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, are supposed to go through the UN Security Council. I'd be very surprised if that's happening. They're supposed to be notified. There's been a terrific couple of articles by Ben Doherty and Chris Mouse at The Guardian through the Transparency Project where they've done freedom of information applications to find out about Australians' arms sales and basically got back over a 1,000 pages that were so heavily redacted, so heavily blacked out that people, they, they could reach no conclusions whatsoever. And Medical Association of the War, we put in freedom of information applications about three years ago to find out what weapons were being sold to Saudi Arabia and again got incredibly heavily blacked out pages. It took us about a year to get hold of them. Um, there is no transparency, there is no accountability and really that's other countries do have transparency. Other countries such as the UK, US, New Zealand, Germany, Spain, they put out detailed armed reports with the destinations and the countries and the values of the exports and the reasons for their permits. But Australia in 2004 stopped reporting, so we haven't done it for a long time. And really this is not acceptable. I mean, we're getting an increasingly secretive government and increasingly lacking in accountability. Senate Estimates is one of the few places where people can be quizzed on this. And um, Tom Hamilton, who's acting Deputy Secretary for the Department of Defence in their Strategic and Policy Unit, said that if we assessed that these weapons would be used for human rights abuse, then they wouldn't approve a permit. Well, it's really hard to sort of believe it when the Saudis say, oh, we buy these weapons, but they don't cross the border into Yemen. And similarly for the UAE, the same sort of party line that, oh, we buy them, but they don't go anywhere. It's sort of difficult to believe when that's their major area of conflict and what they're buying is weapons. So it's, it's really hard to imagine how these weapons that are sold by Australia to these countries that are responsible for widespread human rights abuses don't contribute to these abuses. So Australia is really complicit in, in selling weapons to these countries that are doing such terrible things. But is it known what these weapons are? Um, one that we are, well, because it's so secretive, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, Freedom of Information, they seem to have left a page slightly less redacted, whether in error or not, that said that it was something to do with military naval ships. So that's that was the one piece of information we got that they were selling something to do with shipping and given that the Saudis are involved in blockading Yemen where they, the children said even a year ago that 85,000 children had died because of the blockade because Yemen is so dependent on food so we with our FOI managed to find out that yes we're supporting the Saudi Navy and the Saudi Navy are part of the blockade that is or leading the blockade that's starving Yemenis of food because Yemen imports about 80% of its food. The one from The Guardian, the Ben Doherty, the much bigger FOI application, really found out incredibly little about what was actually being exported. The, the extent and the secrecy is really very counter to what the Freedom of Information Act is supposed to provide.
provide and to get over 1,200 pages that are so sort of blacked out on information that other countries make relatively freely available with annual reports is pretty disappointing and really not acceptable. Are there any figures on the value of these weapons exports? In terms of total, for 18 year the year 2018-2019 was $5 billion, and as I said, that's up from $1.6 billion, so $5 billion being 5,000 million. We know that in terms of the number of permits, 45 went to UAE, 23 went to the Saudis, 14 went to Sri Lanka, and 4 went to the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. The 4s of the Congo were very detailed and extensive, so whether the fact that there were 4... There may have been lots of subsets within that, those four applications because they were extremely long. Um, but no, we don't know what went. We don't know. The EOS systems, the Canberra firm that makes rocket launches and gun emplacements that you can sit on top of an armoured vehicle. So, you know, you see those pictures of people in war where they have a bloke out the back firing guns. Well, this is a system where you can put it on top of the armoured vehicle so you don't have to have someone out exposed. But EOS systems in Canberra who makes this and who received a $36 million grant from the government to help them with their manufacture and exports, says they do sell these weapons to the Saudis, mind you, via a US intermediary. They do sell these weapons, but they are confident that they don't go to Yemen. I, I think it's really a convenient belief to think that you can sell a weapon system to a country that's undergoing, that's, that's waging a war, and then say that they're going to actually go to that war. Well, when you think of Sri Lanka, the head of the government now is he was head of the government during the the massacre of the Tamils at the end of the war. Forty thousand believed to have died in a in a short while. What on earth would they be giving Sri Lanka all that military aid for now? Because it's it's just about a, a dictatorship now. Yes, the fact that there are human rights abuses in the country doesn't seem to be an impediment anymore. And that's, that's a real abrogation. We did sign the arms trade treaty to say that we wouldn't sell weapons. And we're turning into, I mean, it's, 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 it's as if the sort of weapons industry, it's a bit like the gun lobby in America. Um, you know, they can sell to anybody. It doesn't matter who or where or why. And it's extremely secret in Australia. And um, the extent of the secrecy is, is really extraordinary. And this is a government who refuses to sign the treaty on the abolition of nuclear weapons. Under, Australia's actively tried to undermine that treaty every step of the way and just as they're undermining action on climate change it's really, really unacceptable that they continue to, to undermine a treaty they've signed already in the arms trade treaty um, it's, it's this, this, a lack of accountability for this government Australia's connections to war crimes in the Middle East is further advanced by the commander of the Presidential Guard in UAE by retired Army Major General Mike Hindmarsh. I was told a year or so ago that he's in charge of prisoner of war torture camps, and I believe that's in Yemen. Wow, that, I didn't know that. I, did, I knew that he was in charge, but I didn't know that his, his role included that, no. Not looking really good for Australia, is it? No, it's not. And it's, 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 I think the world's looked on in horror with these bushfires because in some ways it's sort of should be Australia's wake-up call that we have behaved so badly for so long and now we're the ones getting the comeuppance. But I think the generosity of people, the generosity of the, the global society who try to help us is, is great, but I think Australia needs to lift its game very, very rapidly. It's what's happening at the moment is 
And when you think of the, the Pacific nations who are most at risk from climate change, are there in Australia now helping us mop up after yes. bushfires? Uh, yes, and, and I can't remember which country it was, but there was a small country that sort of sent us financial aid, and I'm thinking... Vanuatu, Fiji, PNG, yeah, yep. Yeah, I mean, really, we should be ashamed, completely ashamed, that this is what's happened. Um, and their generosity and kindness is, 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 and forgiveness, really, is amazing. It sounds as though MAPW is going to have another very busy year. Oh, the war in Iran. People, there'll be a rally at... Um, I think it's 2 o'clock, it might be 1 o'clock, just let me check, on this Saturday coming in Melbourne and um, at 1 o'clock at the State Library. And we're having a, war, a rally to try and make a call out to say we don't want to go to war with Iran because that's where we're heading inexorably. I mean, Donald Trump's doing it bit by bit, but ever since he decided to step back from the nuclear agreement, this has been inevitable. I mean, Barack Obama, at the time the nuclear agreement was met with Iran said that there were only two options. There was either going to be an agreement to curtail uh, the Iranian nuclear weapons program or there was going to be war with Iran and that, that, was, that was, it was a completely binary choice and Donald Trump has progressively, uh, he stepped back from that agreement quite some time ago and he's progressively put on sanctions that have got tighter and tighter and tighter and now he's assassinated their general and the war is coming and have to sort of look at it, step back and think why and a background of impeachment and re-election would seem to me powerful motivators as well as concerns. But, and I mean, Iran is no saint, but by the same token, America is definitely heading in that direction and Australia is trotting along behind. So if people would like to, to look at if they're in Victoria, the rally is on the, as I said, State Library sets at 1 o'clock this Saturday, the 25th of January, but there's rallies all around the country, so if they go through the IPAN network, the Independent Peaceful Australia network, they'll see where the rallies are and they can support them. And of course those rallies were very successful. That was an interview that I recorded with Margie just before the weekend, but both those days there were huge rallies, first on Saturday for stopping the war on Iran, and then the wonderful Invasion Day collective of people, as Gary Foley said, he believed there was 100,000 people there. So a great deal of work done by many, many people. And congratulations to them all. Last Friday I spoke with environmental consultant Lee Tan about a number of issues. The first being a legal challenge being mounted against the government of Malaysia and the Australian Linus Corporation. Lee, for those who have not followed the long battle by citizens in Malaysia and others worldwide against the establishment of a rare earth production venture in Malaysia, could you start with the background? Linus Corporation is a uh, Australian-listed company, mining company that owns a mine in Western Australia, and they mine a group of minerals called rare earth. Uh, rare earth is actually used in many high-tech and low-emission technologies, including also in weapon technology. So it is considered strategic metals because of that. But rare earth is actually not rare, and it is not earth either. they basically a bunch of um, minerals at the bottom of the periodic tables. 
Um, the only problem with rare earth is usually they found together with uh, radioactive thorium and uranium. And this company mine the minerals from WA, ship it all the way to Malaysia to a city by the name of Kuantan uh, in an industrial park. And there it is processing a huge amount of rare earth, which depends on a, a range of very corrosive and quite hazardous chemicals. The processing is hazardous and huge amount of uh, highly toxic chemicals uh, are used. And the, what is worse is the waste, both in terms of uh, liquid waste and solid waste. They're both toxic. With the solid waste, there will be radioactive thorium and uranium together with toxic heavy metals and chemicals uh, in it. And in Australia, due to, uh, you know, basically tighter regulatory requirement, this company would have to spend a lot of money to manage those wastes, both the liquid waste and also the solid waste. But in Malaysia, due to both the technical capacity limitation and also the lack of political will and also ignorance in, in some way, Linus has gotten away with just dumping the waste by the plant without the highest standards of safety which is required for this category of waste. What do you believe will be the consequences of that? Well, already its own monitoring data have shown contamination of the groundwater and Malaysia being a wet tropical country is subject to severe flooding incident, uh, events every monsoon period. So when it rains, the leachate, which is the liquid gathered at the bottom of the waste piles, will be overflowing into the surrounding environment. And also its uh, so-called radioactive waste dump has very poor lining, which is totally against established international standards and guidelines for this kind of waste. In Australia, the waste would have to be returned to its mine pits and not only that, the mine pit would have to be engineered in such a way that contamination, you know, it's not going to occur. Although we know that some mining companies do away with that anyway, but at least it's in an outback area. Whereas in Malaysia, it's near a fishing village, um, close to a city that's got uh, half a million people living. Well, how did that happen that this plant is in operation in a situation where it is? Well, it, it happened during the, the reign of a very corrupt Prime Minister, uh, Najib Raza, who was embroiled in a world-scale corruption scandal known as 1MDB. Um, so this Prime Minister basically did not do anything to basically keepsake the country and it was just you know, opening the country to all kinds of exploitation while he's busy stealing money from the country's coffer. So the lax governance at that time basically, you know, opened the door for a very highly toxic and polluting company like Linus to operate. And the people, once they found out about it, the people in the area? Yes. Um, you see, rare earth 
processing is not new in Malaysia. In the next state of Perak, uh, in a town called Bukit Merah, um, there were already uh, a toxic hazardous condition from a much smaller rare earth processing plant, previous, well, once owned by Mitsubishi from Japan. And as a result of that contamination, there were many birth defects, miscarriages, very high, you know, incidences of leukemia, and so and so forth in that small town. And eventually that plant closed down, but the cleanup effort is still happening and it has to, uh, a huge area by a pristine forest area, you know, has to be carved out to store all the contaminated materials, including the, all, all of the waste from that particular plant. But that plant is one fiftieth size of what Linus has got in Kuantan. So you can imagine to actually safely store that waste, Linus would need a huge area and a very highly engineered facility. And that would cost a lot of money and it's not going to happen. And even the Mitsubishi plant and its waste dumped in um, Para that has been, well, you know, to a certain extent, well engineered, it's not saved because Malaysia is a wet tropical country and landslide is very common. And all it takes is, you know, decades of uh, weathering and that plant would have been damaged through landslide and, and uh soil erosion or, you know, the frequent tropical deluge and leaching the radioactive substances out into the environment again, which is totally against established international guideline, which is to contain radioactive materials permanently for hundreds of years and under tight monitoring and, and uh, maintenance and so on and so forth. I mean, that sort of culture is just non-existent in Malaysia. And therefore, Malaysia is really not a suitable place for this kind of industry. How have both the local people and interna- internationals protested against this, even before it got off the ground properly? It's been a long yes. campaign, hasn't it? It has been a long campaign, but unfortunately, the construction approval was granted before local residents found out. And um, even though we campaigned very hard and we went to, you know, we the campaign spread all the way to Japan, uh, Germany and Australia and so on and so forth, it actually, I mean, we had some little successes, but it wasn't strong enough to persuade the government of the day to ditch the project, mainly because by the time we found out, the plan was already about 60% completed. And it's really difficult to shelve a plant that's already underway in that sense. There is a a fresh legal challenge at the moment. What about former legal challenges? Well, previously, when uh, local residents took up court cases, it was under the previous regime, under Najib Raza, who was very corrupt, and the whole judiciary system was also corrupt. The judges weren't independent and so forth. 
So there is a glimmer of hope under this present government, which has been elected last May uh, in a historical change of government, um, that the judicial system may be a little bit more independent and that there will finally be some justice dwelt to the people. The, the case is brought by local residents against the Prime Minister and his cabinet ministers as well as liners for basically undermining the process and also the decision of the Environment Minister who first back in uh, December in 2018 uh, demanded that liners manage its waste uh, or ship it back to Australia if they can't find a permanent safe solution for the radioactive waste. But all of that has been overturned by the Prime Minister and his cabinet. So the judicial review case is about challenging that as a legitimate process, yeah, to try and overturn that decision to extend Linus' operating license for another six months. What did he promise Mahathir Mohammed when he wanted to be elected? He promised to reform the country, uh, yeah, and to he admitted that he's, he's made mistake during his previous reign uh, in government, and he promised to restore law and order, to yeah, strengthen the judiciary system, and to make corruption a lot uh, less possible or likely. Yeah, there's a lot of promises, but of course, you know, once in power, many of the promises have not been fulfilled. But by and large, the judiciary system is a little bit more transparent at the moment, especially under the present Attorney General, uh, Tommy Thomas, uh, who once uh, his law firm actually took up the first case from Citizen Against Liners. Couple, uh, well, maybe over a decade, or not a decade, but several years ago anyway. What did he promise about Linus if he got in? Mahathir didn't make any promise on Linus, but definitely his coalition party, several of them, made a pledge that they would shut down the plants. But, you know, none of that's actually taken place so far which is also another reason why see this, um, lo- local residents are so annoyed. And that and even the, the legal uh, fraternity is unhappy about it because it is a raw deal for Malaysia to accept such a huge amount of radioactive waste when the system and also the, um, the bureaucracy has no technical capacity to actually manage it safely. Where did the local people get the finances to t- to have this legal mm. challenge? I imagine sure. it wasn't wasn't it cheap. Uh, yeah, no, no. Um, partly the, a lot of some funds were raised locally from public donation, and secondly, there has been a very kind politicians from well who wanted to forced the government to stick to its manifesto. So he's actually also pledged quite a large sum of money to support the case. Basically, he's one of the few decent politicians who actually wanted justice on this issue. And this will be held in the capital, Kuala Lumpur? Yes, it will, the, the case will be heard in March at the High Court um, in Kuala Lumpur. Does this issue get much publicity in Malaysia? 
Yes, Malaysia, there's been coverage by the media, both mainstream and social media. Internationally, not so much, although the Sydney Morning Herald had written a piece about it. There is also a report that Linus might be moving into the United States. Well, I think that's more, uh, it's more spin by Linus than uh, reality. I've done some research on that one. Basically, the U.S. government is keen to support rare earth processing in the country, but the two companies that's been earmarked for funding are both U.S.-based companies, and Linus did not actually get any mention, even though when you look at the news that Linus has generated, it's all in favour of Linus, which is actually not based on evidence. Does Linus promote these production places in Malaysia as a, a, a green solution to climate change? Yes. Yes, it's claimed that the IAEA has given it the green light and that uh, it has ISO 14000 certification. But when the IAEA made those judgments, it was based on its blueprint. Uh, and also it was uh, made in the period when the license hasn't been granted. And, I mean, IAEA... Has so listeners of Tracia would have heard from other anti-uranium uh, and radioactive campaigners that IAEA is a pro-industry body. It's not really a health-based uh, international organization. Yeah, and, and IAEA, when they make the comment or recommend, or they didn't recommend, but they, they actually commented on it, they actually made many suggestions and recommendations which were not follow up either by the Malaysian government or Linus Corporation. So it is problematic. And in a, a country like Malaysia, there's nobody uh, officially to monitor that and to make sure that those guidelines, um, international guidelines and recommendations were follow up. So as a result, the people were left or have been left to fend for themselves, which is right now. And of course the government's not getting much out of this plant either, is it? Because it's given it a tax holiday? No, not at all. Exactly. The country's not getting any of the profit. Not that it is a highly profitable business either. Yeah, because the kind of railroads that liners process is actually very, well, the common railroads that are not worth the price. Railroads are divided into light railroads and heavy railroads. The one, those ones that are needed by the renewable energy industry are of the heavier rare earth varieties, which Linus only has, you know, like something like 30% of. Uh, majority of its rare earths are cerium, which is not worth that much and is already oversupplying in the market. Where does it export to? Mostly to Japan only, actually. Once Linus was selling its rare earth, both to Japan and China, partly because there's only three countries in the world that actually can refine the rare earth. What Linus is producing is not refined rare earth element, but they are rare earth oxide and carbonates. They need to be further refined. And the technology to refine it is very sophisticated. Only Japan, China and France have those capabilities. Yep. So 
Linus Rare Earth has very limited market, and which is why the share value is very is relatively low, despite its publicity and spin. Yes, we might say it's got a hasn't got a big value, but the the, the no. cost to the people of Malaysia could be quite substantial. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for that, you know, the the only people who benefit from it are the um, the management, uh, you know, the people who works for Linus, and also its uh, board of management. Nobody else is gaining much from it. Even many of its shareholders has lost huge amount of money because they believe in Linus Spin when they bought the share at a much much higher value. And it's a huge plant, isn't it? I've seen photos of it's it. It's massive. It's the biggest plant outside of China. Yes, it, it's occupy an area of 100 hectares. I mean, for a small country like Malaysia, that's significant. For Australia, if you compare it with other mining companies, perhaps it's not that big. In fact, Linus is a junior speculative company with only one project, which is, is now World. Uh, rare earth mine and the Malaysian processing plant. It's really a company that was set up to speculate on rare earth because basically cashing in on people's ignorance about these quite unknown elements called rare earth. If you dig deeper, there's actually a lot of gaps in what Linus claim and the reality. They're not deceiving the stock exchange, are they? That's the thing. I think there's some problems with our own um, Australian Security Industry Commission or ASIC. They're not as vigilant as uh, they should be. They're not checking on Linus' claim as much as they should. Yeah. Closer to home, Lee, Timor, East Timor, mm. Timor-Leste. Yes. What's happening with yes. the environmental issues there at the moment? The good side, the positive side of it is um, Demetrio Di Cavallo, who used to be, who was the founder and, and executive director for the environmental organization Haburas, is now in the government and is uh, holding a key position in the environment ministry or department. And he has actually done a few good Thing by making, uh, trying to enforce law. So Demetrio, um, now that he's in government, has actually utilised his uh, environmental credential quite positively and proactively. In that, you know, by trying to enforce existing law and regulatory requirement, such as requiring certain, uh, well, the environmental impact assessment to be presented before projects being approved for operation. Yes, yeah, so on, in that part, he's done well. So, for example, there's a very controversial Timor cement project that was proposed by a Western Australian developing well, developer, and that's being put on hold for now. And then there's also a coastal resort development, which would close off a large stretch of um, beaches from local access for a resort. Again, is owned by a Timorese Australian. So that both of that has been kind of put on hold, which is a good thing. What about the South Coast Oil Project? 
from my understanding that unfortunately is going ahead because the Timorese economy is very heavily dependent on the oil and gas resources in the Timor Gap. It's something which Shanana Gushmao has always wanted to happen and I think in the Timor political dynamic, nobody dare to oppose what Shanana wants at the moment. What about the environmental consequences? Well, that's the thing. Again, you know, Timor has very, very limited capacity to manage that kind of offshore oil pollution and even onshore oil pollution issues. I guess, you know, for Dimitri, it might be a compromise of letting this big one go ahead and then, you know, trying to do something about the smaller one, which he's got a bit more power to manage. But when you think of how much money is going into this project that could be used for other issues? Absolutely. I think that has been a constant criticism of the present-day Timorese government of not supporting more downstream processing of agriculture produce to support rural communities, but focusing instead of uh, foreign investment, which may or may not assist the country in terms of, you know, longer term, more sustainable revenue generation. I mean, oil and gas, in some way, is a, a sunset industry and it's high emission. I guess, you know, people would argue that unless the rest of the world stop exploiting their oil and gas resources, they have no right to tell them what to do. So it's a very hard argument as much as from conservation and from ecology point of view, we know that's really highly unsustainable and it adds to the problem of climate change. When you've travelled into the, the more rural areas of Timor-Leste, what have you noticed about resources for the people in terms of energy and issues such as that? Well, I don't think it makes huge amount of difference to them. It's mainly the elite in town that are probably benefiting a little bit, perhaps from subcontracting and other services for that industry. In terms of the rural community, I guess, you know, they, they had some access to electricity and power, but none of that is reliable. Yeah, the management of all of that are still prob- is still problematic. And by and large, income and their livelihoods are very much dependent on what they've always been dependent on traditionally. And additionally, what I've seen is this phenomenon where you get many Chinese-owned, well, I wouldn't call them supermarkets, but basically Chinese-owned shops, a bit like our $2 shops that sells everything from building materials to everyday household goods. Which means that, you know, whatever money that people earn will go out of the country anyway through uh, purchasing of uh, these kind of imported goods. There's also many imported goods from Indonesia. So basically, Timor, the Timorese uh, microeconomy is not focusing on recycling the money internally. It's too much dependent on imported goods, consumer goods, which are of poor quality anyway. And I think that's a failure of the economic system in that sense. Is climate change noticeable? Yes. um, You know, as we all know, climate change 
influence the amount of rainfall and uh, cyclones and drought and all that sort of other problem temperature. The majority of the Timorese, 80% I'll say, are farmers and yes, crops can be affected and often are. And if there's a sustained drought in any area, it means that the people there may face starvation. So yes, it, it has um, a lot of impact in that sense, but it's seldom reported. And of course, if you return to Australia and you see the the impact of climate change here, and um, it's Absolutely. very depressing there as well. Absolutely, and I know a few people who live in the countryside. I mean, they they're the people who wanted to do everything right by living sustainably, by having you know their own homegrown vegetables, and yeah, doing everything right by going renewable and and uh, water saving and all sorts of things. And yet they're the first to be hit when there's a bushfire. And many of them have to battle very hard just to save their house. And while they could save their house, but everything around them has been burnt to the ground. So it's really upsetting, really. I don't know how, yeah, how they're going to survive from from here. I mean, I, I can imagine that mentally it would have taken a toll, a very high toll on them. And, of course, the summer's only just started, really. Yes, and summer, yes, that's right. I mean, we only in January, there's two or three more months of bushfire risk, period, Come, yeah, still to go, and the temperature can go very high. Yes, I, and I hope the people in the cities are also mindful of the damages and destruction which climate change can cause if we do not do enough to tackle this ecological challenge. You're in Tasmania at the moment. What's the situation yes, there? Well, they have a drought as well. Everywhere it looks really dry, although in the last couple of days there's been some rain, but it's, never, it's not really nearly enough to keep the forest you know, thriving and keep it damp enough so that if the temperature rises, it will not burn. So, yeah. It's dire, I think, in the whole of Australia. Risk of bushfire is very high everywhere. And that's environmental consultant Lee Tan. And that's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, but do stay tuned for Dumbo Law. We'll go out with the late Chris Wilson. <laughs> 